Thanks for tuning in to the Diabetes Dish Podcast, brought to you by OnTrackDiabetes.com and the OnTrack Diabetes app, available for the iPhone and Android. Here's your host, Ann Galt. This is the Diabetes Dish. I'm Ann Galt, editor of OnTrack Diabetes, your go-to resource for expert advice, healthy recipes, and inspirational stories. Joining me today to discuss obesity are my two esteemed guests, Amy Hess-Fischel and Dr. Michael McGee. Amy is a program coordinator for the Teen and Adolescent Diabetes Transition Program at the University of Chicago's Kovler Diabetes Center. In addition to being a certified diabetes educator, nutrition specialist, and certified insulin pump trainer, she's also a member of the OnTrack Diabetes Editorial Advisory Board. Dr. Michael McGee is a board-certified psychiatrist who specializes in addiction, psychiatry, and psychosomatic medicine. Also, the Chief Medical Officer of The Haven, psychiatric addiction treatment facility located in Central California, and the author of The Joy of Recovery, The New 12-Step Guide to Healing from Addiction. Dr. McGee also counsels and treats patients in his private practice. In today's show, we will discuss the interesting topic of obesity, what it has to do with type 2 diabetes, why diet and exercise often don't work, and what we can do about it. But first, some statistics from the CDC that may not be new to our listeners, but I think bear repeating. Nearly 80% of adults, that's 64 million of us, and a third of children now meet the clinical definition of overweight or obese. Uh, And more Americans live with extreme obesity than with breast cancer, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and HIV put together. There's no question about it. Obesity is a problem and a complicated topic. It's clear that in this country, it's an epidemic, and it's fast becoming a problem in many other parts of the world, too. Some experts blame unhealthy food additives like fructose. Others say what's missing from the conversation about obesity is the emotional side of the problem. So I asked Amy and Dr. McGee here today to help us understand how we got here and what we can do about it. So welcome, Amy and Dr. McGee. Thank you. So Amy, can you start off by explaining the link between diabetes and type 2 and obesity? Of course. Now, of course, everybody always says, you know, what came first, chicken or the egg? But I mean, certainly we we have a very big problem when it comes to to diabetes in our country as well as globally. Uh, But when we look at what is the resounding theme of at least 90% or more of those folks with type 2 diabetes, they are overweight or obese. Now, any time that we see overweight and obesity, we're going to see a multitude of other problems and medical issues that are going to go with that. Now, with type 2 diabetes in and of itself, it's going to lead to insulin resistance. Now, insulin resistance is going to affect a lot of things, but you know, again, it's going to it's going to affect how how they can manage their blood sugars, what kind of medicine that they're going to take, and all of these pieces are going to affect 
the addition to adding weight gain. Now, what most people don't realize when it comes to treating type 2 diabetes is that you know, it's a problem with the body using sugar, which are calories. Now, when the blood sugars are high, the body's getting rid of some of those calories that people don't remember that they've eaten. Now, when they are started on medications to improve their blood sugars, the body starts holding on to those calories, that sugar, and that can lead to weight gain. Now, that's a conversation that a lot of people don't have with their healthcare providers of mm. when I'm improving my blood sugar, what do I do? And so it's this vicious cycle uh, that people uh, equate, you know, better, feeling better with their diabetes with weight gain when it just is a simple conversation that we have to look at the whole problem initially. We can't always just throw medication at somebody and, and think that it's going to help them without talking about the consequences that go with that. And so uh, there's a lot of mistrust sometimes because, again, the patients don't want to take their medication because it's going to you know, lead to weight gain and they just don't understand that, that really how the correlation fits. Are there patients also that take the medication and feel like they don't really have to adjust their diets because the medication's taking care of it? Well, absolutely. You know, I think that while all of the, the standards of care and the algorithms and guidelines and statements that are out there of how to treat diabetes, lifestyle management is kind of the core treatment. Uh, but they, they don't tend to delve too deep into it. You know, again, the whole uh, eat less and exercise more mantra is not going to help people. Uh, what we what we see, especially with with type two diabetes, is that we need to individualize their care in order to fit what they can do, and then be able to build on that to to breed success. Yeah, you know, again, our all of the guidelines, you know, again, reducing calories, increasing physical activity, uh, but it's a lot more that's that's involved in that. You know that. When I, I think of, of a patient that I just saw, she said, I don't understand how I gained 50 pounds. When we delved a little bit into her, her breakfast, breakfast alone, she was eating 1,600 calories at breakfast. Wait, that's what, what does that amount. even, that, what does that look like? That's crazy. Uh, I, she was going to a fast food restaurant and she was eating uh, two like breakfast sandwiches and like hash browns. And wow. you know, again, I'd say, and then she was having like a juice with it. You know, again, it's not a lot of food, but again, the, the problem is that uh, we, with, with type two diabetes and those who are newly diagnosed, or even those that have a long standing diabetes, uh, sometimes we have to get back to the basics uh, that again, we don't want to have these overarching concepts thrown at them that have been thrown at them for as long as they've been diagnosed because they don't understand that concept. And was she shocked when you pointed out the number of calories in her breakfast? Absolutely. Because I'd say that uh, she, she had no idea because uh, she was focusing on carbohydrate. You know, carbohydrate is uh, one of the main fuel that people are taught that are going to affect blood sugar. So they really only, she was only focusing on that. Wow. Uh, and so again, I think that it's a bigger conversation that, yeah, again, I don't like to add complexity to things, but people, we need to, to look at the root of the issues and help 
make some small adjustments uh, to, so they can actually be slightly successful and keep moving on. And, and Dr. McGee raised an interesting point in a conversation with me about the emotional side of food and people's relationship with food as a comfort. Uh, you know, everything in this country revolves around food, it seems to me. And as a culture, you know, anytime we socialize or gather, it's always going to involve food. So he was explaining to me offline about this emotional relationship. And that really, and Amy, you can attest to this as well, is not in the conversation, is not addressed. So the psychological piece is missing. And perhaps that's why people aren't maybe as successful as they could be. So Dr. McGee, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, over the past um, thousand years, uh, we as a species have um, learned how to make food incredibly, incredibly, pleasurably tasteful. Uh, we have people who are armies of chemical engineers who have gone to work for companies who make processed foods and fast foods, whose whole, whole careers and lives have been dedicated to making food addictively pleasurable. And um, it's just part of our default uh, neurobiology as human beings, uh, when we are in pain in any way, if uh, there is something available that can numb that pain with pleasure, uh, whether it be alcohol or cocaine or a Big Mac, um, we, we, will, we will numb that pain or self-soothe ourselves um, with, with, with pleasurable um, substances. And, and that's why I think that it's important to see the obesity epidemic in part uh, as an addiction uh, because people do have uh, a compulsion to, uh, to eat, uh, to, to soothe themselves in a way where there's impaired control, which leads to adverse consequences in terms of the health consequences like diabetes from, from obesity. It's so interesting the idea that food can be addictive in, in your comparison to, to cocaine and, and alcohol, um, but it really isn't any different. And um, I was reading up to prepare for this talk and uh, an expert made the connection between sugar, fructose especially, who seems to be the bad guy here in a lot of ways, um, and how it metabolizes in the body is, a, is the same as alcohol. So even builds more of a case um, for that, that addiction piece. Because I think average people think of addiction to unhealthy substances and food is nourishment, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. No. So, Absolutely. I mean, Amy, is the... Is the, how, how do you think we fix this problem? Like, would your population benefit from having a psychiatrist involved? But is that just not the model at all and no one does this? I mean, how do we fix it? Well, at, at our center, we do have psychologists that are on staff every single day. And then within our weight management program, we also have a psychologist. Uh, and I think that that model for care needs to be across you know all programs now certainly when we think of weight management itself uh, there is no way that someone is going to be successful without having that behavioral component 
you know, I know that, you know, again, there are many weight management programs that don't, but you have to get to the root of the problem. You know, again, I have to say that when you look at people who are obese or overweight, um, a lot of them have gone through you know, three to five or more formal programs to lose weight, and they still haven't met what they needed to do. And that has a lot to do with the support that's surrounding what they're trying to do. You can't, uh, as a dietitian, of course, uh, you know, the role is, is unmistakable, but it's all about the ongoing support. And we, we know that even the group settings when it comes to weight management are going to be far more fruitful because, again, um, it's that, that social component to be able to, to build on what they're doing and that breeds success as well. So this is such a complex problem that, you know, again, requires so many hands in it. And you know, again, ongoing assistance to be able to, to reach some even small milestones. Um, Dr. McGee, how do you approach a person with a food addiction in terms of what do you, how do you counsel them? Where do you steer them to start to, you know, have awareness, I guess, to begin with that it is an addiction? Is that kind of an aha moment for people? How do you, can you walk me through it a little bit? Sure. Um, I, I do think that there's a huge piece that involves awareness. And my approach towards uh, recovery from food addiction involves um, a social component, uh, along with what Amy is saying um, about support, uh, combined with um, a mindfulness approach, and then also a cognitive and, and behavioral approach, combining all four of those pillars to, to make for successful recovery. So to go through those one by one, I think that um, the first thing is, is the kind of work that, that I'm sure Amy does, um, which is to be very much aware of, of what one is eating and to, um, to begin to start uh, making uh, some changes in terms of eating foods that don't have labels um, and, and avoiding processed foods um, and beginning to be calorie aware and mindful uh, of how many calories one is eating. Um, and then combining that with, um, with different behavioral tricks like eating with smaller plates, um, cleaning out um, the, just as, as somebody with alcoholism would clean out their house from alcohol, cleaning out the house from processed, um, high calorie, uh, addictive type foods. Um, so those, those, those kinds of things. I think social support is very, very, very important uh, for people to be able to have a support of other people, including people to call. One of my rules for recovery from addiction is to never crave alone. So if you're having a craving for, uh, let's say, to go to Burger King, um, it, to be able to call a support, a sponsor or a mentor or somebody else in, in a recovery program and say, boy, I'm really having these cravings. And here's the good things that will happen if I don't act on these cravings. And here's the bad things that will happen if I do act on these cravings and here's how I can soothe myself. Maybe I can go for a walk or maybe I can put some bulk into my stomach with some celery sticks or something like that. Um, uh, but um, here's what I can do to, to bear and resolve my distress. And then from a mindfulness perspective, which I think is very important and is really under recognized and underappreciated is this practice of an attitude 
of being very aware of our experience with, with a practiced attitude of appreciation so that we can actually practice and learn to smile at our experience. So for example, I think people with food addictions have had their brains changed uh, and altered uh, by the, the, the substances um, that they have taken into their body. And their neurobiology is such that their, their body wants, their brain wants them to take in more calories uh, than they actually need to burn day by day. And it can be a very small alteration, even, even if the brain asks for us to eat 100 calories more than what we need every day, only uh, 100 extra calories can lead to a weight gain of 10 pounds a year. So you can see how over the years, just a very slight mm -hmm. disturbance of that balance can lead to large weight gains. Mm -hmm. so with mindfulness, by being mindfully aware with an attitude of appreciation, we smile at our experience, even if it's of cravings and hunger, and we do the next right thing, which is to eat a healthy diet according to the calories that we need and, and, and getting good exercise to keep our bodies fit. And we smile and we say, well, this is the feeling of healing. I'm doing the next right thing. I see. And this distress <laughs> is perfectly fine. I'm happy with this because this is what's going to lead to a long and happy life. It doesn't have to be, I'm hungry. This is bad. I need to do something about it. That's right. Exactly. Uh, this is hungry and this is good. This is the way my brain is. Thank you. Uh, thank you, brain, for uh, all that you give me. And now I'm going to do the next right thing to soothe and distract myself. And, and people really react to that for the most part. It's a practice. You have to engage in the practice. But actually, in this way, the obesity problem becomes an incredible spiritual gift because huh. we can use it as a way to ground ourselves and ground our intention in our attention in the experience of hunger and the distress of that hunger. And by letting it go and letting it be, and moving on to do the next right thing that, 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 that life calls of us from moment to moment, we can have a life of love and joy and, um, and, and really take the suffering out of the distress of hunger. So hence the title of your book, right? Yes, yes, the, joy, yes. the Joy of Recovery. Boy, yes. that's very powerful. But when you say it's a practice, so it's not going to be a five-minute conversation. <laughs> it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime practice. Um, the 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 disturbance in the brain becomes a spiritual gift that that forces us to practice this letting go, this centering of our intention in this moment, mm -hmm. smiling at our experience, practicing unconditional appreciation. And I tell people they can stop working on the recovery when they die, but they really shouldn't stop before then. <laughs> <laughs> and and is that satisfying that approach in a way like a brownie would be it can't be but well you know the feeling uh, 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 the feeling of doing the next right thing and taking very good care of oneself and appreciating the sacred nature of this experience of existence and the sacred nature of our bodies and our beings um and 
and take and caring for ourselves as if we were our own cherished child there's no feeling better than that and it's a feeling which is far more fulfilling than than quenching a hunger uh with something that we know is going to be bad for us and amy what do you make of that i i mean diets alone don't work and this is part of the reason why because it doesn't right address the emotional component well and certainly i mean backing up that diets do work but they don't work long term you know that's the thing that you know any and and everyone's always looking for you know the magic diet that's going to help and it really just comes down to you know reducing the calories creating a calorie deficit but you know again when we think of physiology and how the body works when somebody needs to lose 80 90 pounds and they lose that weight you know, again it's inevitable that there may be some weight regain you know because of the the fact that the body doesn't need as many calories as it was doing before so you know again when we look at kind of that whole picture yes a, a diet can work short term but it cannot live in a bubble you know again like dr mcgee was saying is that you know we have to kind of reset our brains to think about our lives, our, our health, our eating differently. And that's the one thing that's going to yeah, help because they all are interwoven. And without having that, that component, that emotional, looking at that, that emotional component, because that's really what when we think of, of food addiction and, and weight gain and obesity, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so intermeshed into that that they, they have to understand and be more in the moment of what they're doing and changing the behaviors uh, that they've kind of had working in their background for so long. And can you explain what you mentioned earlier about the group um, experience of that? I, Dr. McGee? Either oh, one, you know, just sure. how, I think it was yeah. Amy that said, but either one, feel free to comment, how that somehow feels better for people to talk in a group that maybe, I guess, understands the problem or is facing I'm going to leave that to a, a psychiatrist. I okay. will leave that to Dr. McGee. Okay, sure. okay. You know, group influences are so important. Um, nobody recovers alone. And uh, we all need each other to get by. Uh, there's this concept in psychiatry of self-regulation, which is an interesting term technically, but what it really means is that we regulate our emotions through the help and support and input and guidance and encouragement of others. So uh, recovery is, a, is, for most people, a group process where the support and guidance and tips and suggestions and and reassurance uh, of others is so very, very important. And I'll just make one really, really important point here that links into the group support, which is that psychologically, too many people attempt to lose weight from a place of self-hatred. They hate themselves because Mm -hmm. they're fat. And really, in, in, in the process of recovery from food addiction, that has to be turned 180 degrees upside down on its head. And instead, people need to approach the the process of recovery from food addiction 
with a place from a place of deep self-reverence and self-love rather than self-hatred. They are losing weight for not because they hate themselves and they need to be thin to love themselves. They are losing weight because they love themselves and they want to nurture and care for this cherished, precious gift of existence uh, to the best of their ability. And that's a huge mind shift then, isn't it? It's a huge mind shift. And that really gets into what I think is a terrible, terrible um, problem that we have in our society right now, which is that there is a lot of shaming and, and, and contempt that pervades our society towards people who have a neurobiological dysregulation in their uh, appetite metabolism system uh, so that we, we basically are hating um, subtly in our attitudes uh, people who are overweight, which, which, which is infectious. And people pick up on that and they learn to hate themselves. And if you start from that place, you're just not gonna be as successful in recovery. Uh, than, 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 than by reversing that and really having compassion for ourselves that we have a dysregulation which is harmful to our health and, and really for us to have compassion for others who suffer from uh, obesity uh, for, for an illness, if you will, or for a, a disturbance or a, a dysfunction which was not of their choosing. Um, so I think that, that role of compassion and love is so critical. But talk a little, talk yeah. a little more about that—the um, neurobiological effect. Now, that's caused by food additives, or is is that not what you mean? Well, I think it's caused by sugar, uh, which in itself can be highly addictive. I have patients uh, for whom sugar is just like cocaine. If they eat one piece of cake, just one piece of cake, they will lose complete control and uh, they will have to eat the entire cake and maybe three more um, and, and, and lead to bit this experience of binging. Um, and that can be yeah. on sugar, it can be on carbohydrates. Um, so for some people, food is just like crack cocaine when it comes to sugar, carbohydrates, um, processed foods that are designed and engineered to be extremely delicious. Uh, so uh, for, for many people, there's this real need to avoid uh, foods that have been engineered to be extraordinarily delicious because it will set off this cascade of compulsion, craving, and loss of control uh, that lead to overeating. And so one yeah. of the ways to avoid that from happening is to clear it from your f house, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. Clear it from your house. Um, make, make it so that those foods are not easily available. But they're all around us. So it, uh, the yeah. other aspect of this is to be very intentional. Recovery is yeah. an intentional, mindful process where we are very thoughtful and about choosing what it is that we, um, what we decide to put into our, our, our body and, and to eat in a very mindful way, very mindful of our intentions, that we are not eating to soothe ourselves we are not eating to calm emotional distress. We're not eating necessarily for the pleasure. We, we're savoring the pleasure that, that exists uh, uh, and allowing ourselves to do that, but we're eating in a very mindful way for the purpose of, of sustaining our bodies and promoting our health. 
And, and that's, that's really very important for these process, for, for food addiction and, and for other process addictions uh, like work and sex, yeah. um, where mm-hmm. we have to engage in these activities to survive and, and to thrive, but we have to change fundamentally our entire attitude for how we engage in them. Oh, gosh. Um, Amy, can you talk about liquid calories a little bit? Because I feel like there's a lot of bad sugar in these liquid calories, and people don't necessarily consider them, um, maybe when they're thinking about what they eat in the day. No, absolutely. You know, I think that liquid calories are one of the easiest things for for people to to feasibly uh, eliminate from from their their lifestyle because they really have very little benefit to to anything, uh, and that's usually the number one thing. Whether it's for weight management or in type two diabetes, you know, we're we're asking them to eliminate those liquid calories because again, um, you know, as you said, people don't even realize, oh my gosh, I had no idea that juice had that many calories. You know, when we think of, you know, a half a cup, you know, four ounces uh, has, has 60 calories. You know, as Dr. McKee mentioned, you know, an additional 100 calories per day is going to add to a 10 pound increase over a year. So, you know, very little things that people can do, but not to mention that our brain can't realize the calories that we're consuming um, from liquids, you know, and so, you know, again, oh. they're just adding these and it's not necessarily even doing anything. It's not going to satiate them. You know, they're not going to be full. Uh, so again, uh, they can certainly swap it out, but even looking at all of the guidelines, the hydration guidelines, and you know, again, there is, there is no benefit to anything but water, you know, again, and I know that uh, that's sometimes a very hard sell for people, but it's all about habit. It's all about changing our behaviors. And that's going to take time to be able to do that. But I mean, are you in in the population you treat, which is mostly younger people? um, Is that kind of, do they understand that you know, water should be what you're giving your body. Um, I keep thinking of an example I heard recently, and I think it was in Texas, where for 99 cents, you could get like, I don't know, some hideously oversized um, soda, like, I don't know, 32 ounces, a Snickers bar, Mm -hmm. and a little bag of Doritos for 99 cents. I mean, the economics of it kind of have to be part of this too, right? Because bad food, food food that's bad for you is very inexpensive, it seems. I mean, water is more expensive than soda. How did we get here? (laughs) You know, I I have to say that, you know, again, I think Dr. McGee mentioned this earlier, is that, you know, again, there's some very smart individuals working on uh, and preying on people's likes. You know, again, uh, you know, the foods have been created uh, the, that to, to taste good. And the one thing that we also have to look at is that this behavior didn't, didn't actually, wasn't created overnight. You know, when we look at babies and whether uh, a mother gives their child 
uh, vegetables or fruit first is going to dictate what they prefer. If they're given fruit first, they're going to prefer things that taste sweet. And they're not going to like things that taste like vegetables. And so again, we have to change this behavior of, you know, that we we're used to, to having things that are this pleasurable. Uh, and so the, the problem is that when it comes to economics, yes, all of these things are, can be found that are much cheaper, uh, but there are also healthier foods that can be found cheaper too. It's just that people have to have skin in the game. You know, they have to be willing to make some, some concessions uh, to what they're doing. You know, and, and it really is they're changing that mindset that, okay, we have to eliminate, you know, it's all about semantics. You know, as healthcare providers, when it comes to weight management, it's always like you have to give up, you have to get, you know, do this. And so we have to sometimes change how we're having these conversations. Yeah, I mean, diabetes language, there's papers on how we talk about to people about, you know, diabetes and, and being more, more mindful of that. I think the same thing when it comes to weight management, we have to be more mindful about what we're telling patients saying, this is what you get to do instead of this is what you give up. You know, yes. so we have to, we have to rethink about, you know, that not everything that we're doing is a negative and people have to change um, that, that thought, just like Dr. McGee said, is that, you know, again, they, they need to, they need to love themselves and, and want to be able to do this instead of, oh, I hate this. Uh, you know, this is, this is a negative in my life. So we, we do have to kind of flip that. And, and Dr. McGee, can you comment about um, medical doctors and, you know, maybe their lack of uh, sensitivity towards the language and also their lack of understanding of nutrition? Right. Um, so I, I've seen so many examples like on social media and just in the literature about doctors fat shaming people. You know, an obese woman came in complaining about, you know, migraine headaches and the doctor lectured her on her weight. Yes. Um, the way that doctors treat people who suffer from obesity is a travesty. Uh, too many times people will come into a doctor's office and the doctor will say, uh, you know, you're overweight, um, as, if the, as if the patient didn't already know that. Mm. Um, and, you know, you really, should, you really should exercise and eat less or go on a diet or eat more healthy. And get, giving that kind of a message in that kind of a way is well intended. It, the, the intentions are good. Uh, it's just that it's one small, tiny part of a much, much larger message, um, it, which has to do with, with again, talking about um, this is an addiction and about the need to engage in a, in, in a, in a recovery program uh, that, that sure, it would involve um, dieting and being mindful of what one eats and, and, and exercising. But uh, again, within a much larger context of, of, a, of a total recovery program. And I think most doctors you know, were, are good people and, and, and are well-intended, um, but, but sometimes uh, don't give a comprehensive, thoughtful message. And sometimes out of their own unconscious uh, biases and distaste for people who are overweight, 
can be uh, unconsciously shaming uh, of their patients. But it seems to me that if, if as a culture, whether you're a doctor or just, you know, someone who loves an obese person or the obese person, him or herself, um, seeing it in a more sympathetic way, like not you got this way because you're lazy, um, would help a lot. Yes, yes. It's really important to see that, that nobody chooses to be obese. Uh, this is something that, that happens. It's a neurobiological process. It's a neurobiological behavioral social process that has all these uh, components. Um, we call this a wicked problem in that there are many, many different factors. There's biological factors, there's psychological factors, there's social factors, there's spiritual factors that all go into affecting what we eat and the way we eat and how much we eat and how much exercise we get and that, that go into that very fine-tuned balance of, uh, of weight management and weight maintenance. And, uh, and that, all that needs to be understood with a great deal of compassion and humility because we are all affected by these powerful factors and influences in ways that oftentimes we're just completely unaware of. And, and do you find that once people start to see it that way, um, they can forgive themselves a little bit and then they're more sort of properly motivated to approach it? Absolutely. It, with self-compassion, with, self, with self-forgiveness, with self-acceptance. Uh, Jung had a saying that, that really, um, the gist of which um, is that um, change starts with acceptance. And I think that, that, that seeing things clearly and compassionately is the starting point for a process of positive change. Wow. It seems yeah. so simple. Um, I know it's not. I mean, you know, Amy, and and maybe we'll start to wrap this up here by by giving the audience um, who's listening maybe some some practical tips, um, th- things we can do. Um, Dr. McGee mentioned, you know, not having the this food that's hard to resist in your house. Um, but right. I was ha- I was having a conversation with someone recently who was an overweight teenager. Um, and she distracts herself to this day by pinching the skin on her hand. And when she's in a grocery store or somewhere where, you know, the delicious smells of freshly baked goods are maybe her, maybe pulling her towards an unhealthy place, you know, she can pinch her hand to just remind her of why she doesn't need to have that donut right now. I mean, I mean, are there are there kind of simple tips people can start applying to their lives, and and maybe you know if, if you're listening to this and you're the loved one of an obese person, you know how you can start to um, see them more sympathetically and help them. Well, I think I mean Dr. McGee hit the nail on the head earlier that hey, this this is an addiction, and so when we think of you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, you know, all of these groups, you know, again, you you have to, you you have to be involved for the long haul. 
you know, when it comes to weight management and weight loss and maintaining that weight loss, this is not an easy fix. Yeah, and you know, again, everyone is going to be different. And so, you know, where you know, one person, you know, Oreos is my trigger. I cannot have Oreos anywhere near me or the entire bag is gone. And so, again, we have to understand ourselves. And without having, you know, that behavioral component to understand, you know, again, having simple tools are, are useful. But, again, people have to understand that they need to, to be involved in something that's going to support them for the long term. And just like all other addictions, you may fall off the wagon and, but you have to, you have to have a mechanism to get back up. So, I mean, certainly again, as I said from the beginning is what's going to lead to weight loss. It's the amount of calories that we're, we're putting into our bodies. So we have to have a good understanding of that and working with a, a registered dietitian uh, is going to help do that. Uh, but even simply the easiest way to get rid of uh, just calories without really doing anything to the volume of what you're eating is eliminate regular soft drinks, juices, Gatorades, Powerades, and get them away. There is no, there's no need for them uh, in the context of our day. You know, again, we can find, you know, sparkling waters, you know, that have amazing flavors that are, have no calories uh, that can just satiate them and give them uh, what they, what they need uh, as well. So that's the first step. But again, certainly, you know, by all means that um, this is an ongoing process. Um, I, I wish I could say that it's so easy, but it's, it's not, yeah. you know, and I think that we have to be re realistic about what we're, what we're telling people that this is going to be hard and we know that, uh, but again, you're worth it. You're worth putting in that kind of, of, of work that even small changes can mean that you're going to be breeding further successes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Dr. McGee, would you like to add anything to that? I think that was beautifully said when Amy said, it's just so true. Recovery requires effort. You have to work a recovery program for a recovery program to work for you. And it needs to be a lifelong effort. Um, there are basic um, uh, practices in recovery that apply, whether it's alcohol or methamphetamine or heroin or, or food. Uh, and those are basic trigger management and craving management skills. So if you go into a grocery store, for example, and you smell those delicious baked goods and you feel an overwhelming craving, well, then you've been triggered, and, and, and in, in that kind of situation, you, you might need to leave, leave the grocery store to, um, to avoid the trigger. Um, one technique would be to make sure that when you go shopping, that you've had a nice, large, healthy salad, for example, and, and, you're, and you're, you're feeling, and you're not hungry when you go shopping. That, that's a, a simple behavioral technique that can, can really, really help. Uh, and then the other thing is there, there are some general, generally accepted craving management practices. I mentioned before the practice of never crave alone, uh, which is to call the recovery support whenever you feel like you're, you're, you're out of control and you're going to eat something that really is not within your prescribed diet. Um, and, the, and then there's uh, uh, meditative techniques like relaxing into the craving, as I mentioned before, smiling at the craving. Um, uh, returning to the experience of this moment with an attitude of appreciation 
and then uh, going on to do the next right thing. This, again, it, it's all a practice. It's a practice that one does with the support and encouragement and guidance of others. Uh, it's a lifelong practice. It does require effort, but the effort is well worth it. And I, I love what you said earlier about the the gifts, I mean, that you get from the shift in, in thinking and this approach. Yes, it really does. It really does. I, I think that um, addiction can be a gift. Uh, it, the, the, a food addiction and, and the need to sort of work on this issue of weight management out of love for oneself really forces one to live at a higher level in a more conscious, a more mindful level, and, and really, really forces one to be very mindful about living each moment of each day with uh with love and with integrity and and as a result of of this of this difficulty it can really force people to transform into very beautiful people and in that way it really can be a gift yeah transforming into a brand new story you know and that's a a very positive message that people understand need to understand this is the most important thing that people are always missing you know they're always like oh well you know, weight management, it's about, you know, nutrition and, and exercise and, and that can't be all, you know, I mean, it really, it's, we, we have to, to, to think about what we're doing in a different way and changing the kind of the trajectory of how we, how they speak to themselves, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, about yeah. the self-worth and all that. So, I mean, everything that you said, Dr. McKee, I mean, again, it's, you know, it's, it's crucial. So, I mean, again, I, I think this is, that's the hopeful part of all of this is that, you know, again, they can rewrite their story. And that's, that's important. Like sugar as poison. You know what I mean? Like yes. so yeah. many people. Sugar is poison. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, and if you can, it's, well, it means it's nothing. Yeah. It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't contribute to anything that we do. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And if you can start to see it as, you know, something toxic for your body, I mean, maybe yes. that yeah. is the vehicle to, move people to avoid it, you know, and not see it as a happy thing and a pleasurable thing and something that's associated with all the good things we do in our lives, just, you know, as something bad. Uh, The way I see a lot of my vegan friends, and I don't have that many because my goodness, that's a tough diet. um, They they became vegan because it's for them a matter of animal cruelty and they can't get their heads around, you know, hurting animals in in that way. I mean, if we could start to see sugar as a poison, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I didn't ask you guys about dessert, but you know, is there, <laughs> is there a healthy place for dessert? Is there, I mean, can, <laughs> or, or you know, I, does dessert need to just go away? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I'd love to hear your opinion of this, Dr. McGee, but I'd say, you know, I mean, certainly, um, I, I don't, you know, I mean, again, I think that when I look back at when I was a child, you know, I mean, it was kind of like, Ooh, it was a treat. And, you know, but I was, I was a, a kid running around like a maniac, burning right. thousands burning of calories. calories, Right. you know? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I'd say, you know, again, that, that whole process that we're rewarding ourselves for something with food. And, you know, again, that's where we, we have this problem that we shouldn't be rewarding ourselves with food, a dessert, you know, I mean, personally speaking, eating, you know, eating a dessert uh, especially like a, a large piece of cake. I mean, I have like self-loathing. I have self-loathing, you know I mean? Mm. So what are these poor people, you know? So, I mean, I think that I've 
sure a bite or two every once in a while, you know, but again, it, it all depends on the person that well, is there. If that's Amy, their trigger. Said, yeah. Right. Uh, I'm sorry. You know, Amy, what you said about personalizing care, I mean, um, for some people, they can have one bite of pie and savor the pleasure of it. Right. And enjoy exactly. The exactly. Just like yeah. one person may be able to have a, a, a glass of Grand Marnier at the end of a dinner. Yeah. Uh, but another exactly. person who suffers from alcohol use disorder, if they have that one glass of Grand Marnier, they're gone. Um, right. That's exactly. They're, all- they're having a whole bottle. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so it really is an individualized thing. Yeah. Uh, I think one one bite of pie. sugar is a poison but but alcohol is a poison too but some people can have an occasional drink and enjoy the pleasure of it and it's you you you, you want to avoid being very rigid and puritanical it it, it really is an individualized issue right because it's that's that's the part that you know as a dietitian uh you know again when i when i see patients i'm like well i don't like seeing dietitians because they always take something away and so, you know, I mean, you have to really kind of build that rapport of, you know, again, I'm not the one taking things away. We have to look at, you know, what is it can, that you can and cannot do? You know, I mean, it really comes down to that. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, I mean, me personally, as I said, I just, I can't, I don't, I don't need dessert. But, you know, again, there may be a person that says, yeah, I can, you know, go out to dinner with my husband and I can have a bite of that cheesecake and I'm fine. I don't need the whole thing. And that, that, you have you know, to know that you're that person, though, to begin with, right? Well, right. And that's where you have to delve into, you know, you really have to talk to, to this person and find out what kind of, of changes are they willing to make and what can they or cannot do. You know, again, mm-hmm. um, like you said, you know, you go into the, uh, the supermarket and you smell the bakery and it's like, I want to eat everything that's there. So you have to kind of change, you know, what what's what can you and can you do? Yeah, so it's, it is individualized. Well, this makes me feel a lot more hopeful than when I started this conversation with the two of you. I mean, there seems to be so many forces at work to make a problem even more difficult. Um, but I, I really thank you so much for devoting your time today to this important and interesting topic. And for everybody listening, thank you so much for turning in, tuning in to the Diabetes Dish. We hope you'll stay tuned for new weekly podcasts from now through the month of November as we recognize Diabetes Awareness Month. And Amy and Dr. McGee, thank you again. You're welcome. Pleasure. A pleasure. 